0: because we kind of talk about this thing sometimes called the bad apple, is there's this theory, okay, well, we'll just identify the bad apple and then somehow we remove the bad apple and then everything's going to be okay. But we know that's not the case. Do you know, there's, there's cultural systemic issues and all that will happen is they'll be replaced by another person that's operating in exactly the same context and will likely make exactly the same decisions. So, I think the whole AIM narrative is massively unhelpful. The Building Safety Act is useful because it clarifies accountability. But if we're clarifying accountability so we know who to blame versus so that we can actually make buildings safer, then for me, that's slightly problematic. But you will. I mean, frankly, I'm a little bit cynical about change in the built environment. So maybe the kind of stick approach of you will be caught is what's needed to drive change in the industry. I don't like that approach, but maybe to a degree that's needed. Welcome
1: to the Surveyor Hub podcast the podcast for surveyors who just love what they do. I'm Marian Ellis, and in today's episode, I catch up with Jill Koenig, author, speaker, and campaigner. In April 2022, Jill joined Arup University as transformation director, working to shape a sustainable world. Jill is the author of Catastrophe and Systemic Change, Learning from the Grenfell Tower Fire and Other Disasters, It combines her decades of experience consulting organisations in high-hazard industries to build the leadership and culture to prevent catastrophic events. Jill has a deeply personal connection to the 2017 fire, because from 2011 to 2014, Jill lived on the 21st floor of Grenfell, and seven of her immediate neighbours were among the 72 deaths. Now, I'm no interviewer these podcasts are conversations for you to listen to as you go about your day on appointments or walking the dog. I don't believe I could do a podcast on Grenfell, the justice it deserves technically or emotionally. If you haven't come across Jill's work, you might want to pause the podcast now and go and listen to her own podcast which accompanies the book and then pop back. I'll pop the link and everything in the show notes. I've been following Jill's work and thought leadership for some time, and it's really resonated with me, which is why I wanted to have a chat with her. Because as we chat, I'd like you as surveyors, or whatever stage of your career you happen to be, to listen to the conversation in the context of the complaints and claims surveyors get. The way we approach our work and the rules, regulations and standards which are set for us. I'd like you to think about the culture of your work environment the actions of professional membership bodies, and the choices you make to speak out or not. So if you're out and about for the day or on your daily commute, listen in and don't forget to take a look at the show notes when you get a chance. Hello, Jill. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Marion. Thank you. I'm actually a bit nervous having you on the podcast because I've followed you on LinkedIn for a little while now. (laughs) I find you quite inspirational In a number of ways, and I'd like to talk about your career and the kind of work that you get involved in. But for those on the podcast listening, my who don't know, (laughs) my background is as a residential surveyor and valuer, but in particular, defect and valuation claims. So when surveyors get sued, when it all goes wrong, and that taught me a lot about surveyors and that they're human beings and what that means to being quite a rigid framework of standards and regulations, but then making actually quite human decisions. It taught me a lot about experience. We all talk about managing client and customer expectations, but there's a reality <laughs> in in that. And I find a lot of surveyors either have no interest, no insight because of their, their organizations and the the little part that they play in a a wider chain. And then also the whole surveyor experience, if you like, of of doing the work, what we set out to do, what we think we're doing. And, and it talked a lot about failure and why we make mistakes. And I say that talking to somebody who's well-qualified and versed in failure, understanding more why we make mistakes. But I was sort of more self-taught and just in a quite unique experience, I guess, in terms of of my career. And for all the rules and regulations that we have, it's that gut instinct that we don't act upon or we're worried about. And and that can range all the way from whistleblowing in big situations all the way through to hesitating. Do I put that tick in the box on on the form? So I'm really curious about that. And so when I I saw, I think I was following somebody else, Andrea White, I think it was, who is a fire engineer and she follows your work. Yeah. And you just started to share some really useful, helpful content and thought leadership. And I thought, yes, (laughs) somebody else who seems to get it. Could you perhaps just give a bit of an introduction to the kind of work that you do and and where you started?
0: Well, so where I started is a long A long way from where I am. So I actually studied business and then worked as an academic for a while and then worked in personal training and development and leadership and then wanted to work in organizational change and by accident fell into doing that in the domain of safety. So I had a background in culture and leadership, but I joined a company that applied Those same principles of creating good culture and good leadership in the domain of high hazard industries and safety. So, fell in love with safety and particularly with low probability, high consequence events. So, how do you prevent or build the culture where the incidents like Greenfall, which is probably well is why I have a public profile, is because of Greenfall. So, is how do you prevent those? Rare events from happening, and when you get into the complexity of that, things like listening to your instinct or ensuring that the voices of residents or more junior people in teams, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is as important as all the technical aspects of safety. So, background-wise, that's what I did at the time of Greenfall. and then for the last year, I've been working as a transformation director in Arab University, and I joined ARIP because I wanted to work in the built environment to be part of the change that I think is needed versus sitting outside and commenting. It just felt to me that it had more integrity to be part of the built environment.
1: But that's quite a quite unique experience, isn't it, to have got on the journey that you have and the the kind of work.
0: Yes, and then I didn't also didn't say my personal. So I lived in Grenfell from 2011 to 2014 on the 21st floor. So I'd moved back from working overseas, and my husband and I just come back to London. We weren't ready to buy, and we loved that part of London. We've always lived there when we've been in the country, and I was looking for somewhere to rent. And I had never thought of living in a high rise, but saw an advert for an apartment. It was an absolutely gorgeous apartment. So I moved in there and then fell in love with high rise living and then bought an apartment in Trailic Tower. So a tower you know mine was of Grenfell. Exactly. Well it's not next door. It's kind of a bit further away, but oh. it's a famous Marmite Tower. Anyway, so I lived there and watched the fire from my window. I promised as I saw the fire happen that I would do whatever I could to make sure we learned from it which was a existential moment in retrospect probably more significant than i thought it would be
1: yeah and and i guess you've got all of this experience and then you see this disaster right in front of your eyes and you've got that knowledge to be able to prevent things like this happening i think one of the things that i had a real effect on me as I read your book, and you've also got a podcast that goes alongside it. and We'll put links to it in the show notes, mm-hmm. and it's something I think every surveyor listening to this podcast should really mm-hmm. listen to. But it's called catastrophe, isn't it? And that that was yeah, catastrophe called... and systemic change. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: And tell me about how that that book came came about. Well, essentially, I was frustrated. With what I would say, the lack of conversations that I sh- thought should be happening. So I suppose because of my experience and my experience in high hazard industries. Actually, in the immediate aftermath, I was quite hopeful because incidents and events like that can lead to very rapid change. They can be very disruptive and, and lead to rapid change. And that in high hazard industries, I like put Piper Alpha as a good example, which is still the biggest industrial disaster and led to huge amounts of change, not just in regulations, but also in attitude. And I think I, I wasn't seeing the types of conversations that I'd expected to see. All the types of reflections and learning that I'd expected to see post Grenfell. So I started a blog just to get my, probably mostly for myself, frankly, is just to get my own thinking articulated. And then through various things that led to me meeting Diane Cole, who's the editor of the book, and she, I had lunch with her, I was introduced to her by a friend, and she said, send me a message the next day and went, do you want to write a book? I was like, well, okay. I think one of the things for me is the promise to make sure we learned has in some ways kind of simplified things for me because I don't have to think about things like, should I write a book? The answer is just, well, yes. It's kind of like a front of hand, back of hand, because I don't really love having a public profile. Before Grenfell, I was very private. I didn't have a Twitter account. I uh, so, so I think there's something for me around the responsibility that goes with if you want to enable and create change, there's something around having a public profile. And, and that's, that's an interesting much, conversation. Yeah, I think particularly funny. for women as well. Yeah, And it's very much that sense of purpose.
1: And knowing the reason why you're doing what mm. you're doing gets you through public mm. speaking, being visible, doing what you you need to do. You just dig, yes. and you you do it, and you find a way to do it because you've got that that bigger purpose. You said that the conversations weren't including the things that needed to be. What what was lacking?
0: I think probably the biggest thing for me that was lacking was introspective conversation about learning. So I didn't see the industry going, this could have happened to us, or publicly, I think this potentially was happening privately, but publicly reflecting on failures, mistakes, lack of good leadership, how things needed to change. I mean, I still to a degree, don't think those conversations are happening, at least in the public domain. So we all make mistakes. And the more that we can be humble and open and honest about the mistakes that we make, the more we can learn. And I don't experience that openly in industry or an understanding of culture. So I think people bandy about we need cultural change. It's cultural or it's systemic, but I don't think there's rigor around what those things mean. And then we create a charter and we think that's going to change culture, or we change regulations and we think that's going to change culture. So I, I I find almost a lack of rigor around a lot of the terminology that we bandy around. That's yeah, just a lack of rigor, really. So how I'd say it. I so said there's a couple of things there. Well-intentioned, yeah. but... <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And, and there's there's the gap, I think, between a disaster happening and the reality of it affecting your day-to-day work or, or life. As, as we sit here today, we recently had the earthquake in Turkey. Um, mm-hmm. thousands same of, issues. Same issues. Yeah. Thousands of people have died, building quality. But it's, it's not, apart from being on the news, it's not really touching our lives or our day-to-day work. And so it's easy for it to not be a... A priority. I think also. So we're always going to be mindful of that gap. I think but often on the podcast, people will hear me talk about making things relatable to a surveyor on a wet Tuesday in Margate. How do we? How do we bring that that gap closer so that everybody feels connected and motivated to do? Do what they need to do, and I suppose there's also the leadership that we've had to date, and, and historically the way that we we do things, and that hasn't involved a lot of. You said at the start, your personal development was something that you that you're involved in, and we we don't fully appreciate that. I don't think to understand the difference that 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 can make, and that's something that I see or saw with all the complaints that I was dealing with, and some were big, some were small. But how how do you know? To trust your gut instincts because you can be as technically trained as you like, but lots of surveyors and people like come across don't feel good enough. The whole imposter part. So, how do we all sort of bring that technical ability to life to be able to to apply it and trusting your your gut instincts?
0: So, I think that the first thing that I would say is to go back to this notion of low probability, high consequence events. So, when we talk about greenfield or Turkey, or a pandemic. Those are low probability events that have enormous, substantial, massive consequences. But because of their very rare nature, they're not front and center the whole time. So part of my view is for a surveyor on a wet Tuesday or anybody working in the built environment or any profession, Is training ourselves to think of the worst case scenario not the likely scenario so it's easy to go oh well probably this will be fine and tick box and move on but well maybe it won't be and until you start relating to low probability high consequence risks distinctly I don't think we're even in the right conversation, if that makes sense. And that's very difficult to do because they're not front and center. And in all likelihood, nothing will go wrong. But what if it does? And what if you were the surveyor that signed something off that then led to catastrophic failure and multiple fatalities? That is always what I think of from a professional point of view. And certainly when I'm working with the leaders is, well, Imagine the worst thing happened. Have you done everything to prevent it? Would you be able to live with yourself if something terrible happened? And I think there's a moral conscience, if that makes sense, of preventing future tragedies that should guide us, but I don't think does. And I think that's because of our relationship with risk fundamentally, is we we don't think about these low probability events in the way that we perhaps should. Does that make sense?
1: It does, yeah. And a lot of the surveyors, I know, and when, when I used to inspect properties my, myself, where are is, we worry about things yeah. going wrong. And... We're very good at it and we walk into a property and we're trying to prove something is not there rather than than it is. We worry about claims and being sued and we've got some big cases that have happened in, in recent years where people have been personally sued, not, not the, the company. And so on the one hand, our brains are trained to go out and inspect and look for these mini disasters of different shapes and forms, but it's quite hard to then switch off at the end of the day and go home and have your tea with the kids and relax. (laughs) And Yeah, because we're not easily switched on and offable. I think there was an an advert actually, on and offable, an energy advert back in the 90s. But we can't just, we can't do that very uh, easily. And so it's quite hard. How do you do that?
0: Well, I'm not sure that I know how to do that. I don't think (laughs) I'm a good person to ask. (laughs) I think I have learned to cope with not switching off. So I think there's a huge kind of mental health aspect to this. And I think, I I mean, I'm just very rigorous around looking after myself because if I don't look after myself, then I won't be able to have the conversations or enable the change that I'm committed to. So I think there's something, and I'm learning more and more about this. So. It, a year into a new job that I love and kind of learning how do I switch off from that as well because I could frankly work 24 hours a day and I still wouldn't do what I want to and what I have the opportunity to do so I think there's something for me really around discipline and learning about what you need to take care of yourself so for me for example I need to exercise Eat well and meditate. And anytime one of those goes out of kilter, I'm not in a good place. And then do, and you'd think that I kind of learn and just keep all three of those in perfect balance all the time. Hey, I don't. I kind of go, oh, it'll be fine. I'm really busy. I won't meditate this week. And then two weeks later, I'm in a mess. And then I go, okay, well, you should learn. And then I start meditating again. And then I'm fine again in a week or two. So I think there's a level of, Rigor and discipline of self care. If you're committed to change, and the way you described it, that's absolutely critical.
1: And I think that's so true. Totally agree with you. But it's the most annoying thing to (laughs) to be told to look after yourself, eat well, get sleep, all of all of those things. But it's a it's a fundamental of what makes us human. And I think remembering that we're human and not robots is is absolutely key. One of the things I talk to my coaching clients about is work-life integration rather than work-life balance in that yes, yes. you've got to have proportionate boundaries and and to have rest and, and downtime. But if you're somebody who naturally thinks about buildings when you're on holiday, that's okay. So long as you, you're doing it in in context. Equally the same, it's, it's okay, probably more so these last few years than in the past to talk about family and what you've been doing at the weekend within a work environment, that's okay too. It's all about, about context. And, but the more you know who you are and get that grounding, that can really then help you with those uh, trusting your gut instincts as to, uh, can I make a decision on this today? Or am I absolutely shattered? Cause I was up all night. Am I worrying because of something that's going on with the family and, and am I in the right headspace and knowing what gets you back to okay? Like you're meditating or whatever it is can then put you in the best position to make the the best decisions that you that you need to and I think we we yeah. often underestimate the importance of that.
0: There's really a demand as a leader to be very self-aware and I think that's increasingly important and also knowing as you've just said when to trust your decisions or your instinct and when not to. So I kind of like know when I call it clean. I kind of like know, okay, in this situation, I'm good. I don't have other stuff going on. I can trust what I'm thinking here. In other situations, either because there's perhaps not a a kind of more complex relationships or I'm tired or I don't understand the context more fully, I know I can't trust myself fully. And then there's... Being aware and also having trusted people that you can go to. I don't rely on myself. Sometimes I'm very clear I can, and then I have to watch that because that can lead to arrogance and not being humble or looking for well, where am I perhaps being a bit headstrong and not challenging my biases, etc. We don't train people in this stuff, I don't think, or talk about it enough. Is how do you develop that level of self-awareness? How do you know who you can trust and who you can go to and who you can be open with and who you can't. Those things are incredibly important.
1: They are. While well, we're doing very technical roles, like I said, you can have all the technical ability and read all of the books and pass all of the exams and have the alphabet after your name. But if you don't know how to apply it or don't trust your judgment, then there's no point. And I suppose some of that might be our work environments where we get feedback on when we're doing okay and when we're not. that like you say, the people that we can talk to for support, what we're expected to do and and perform. And so it's that 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 culture and work environment that's absolutely critical for our skills to be used in the best way. And that's what I don't see see happening. People are get qualified and are sent out to do the job. And if you don't get a claim, you're seen as a as good when actually it's probably just luck mostly. So.
0: What and who knows know. what lace and stuff well, is like out
1: there. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So watching out for signs of what success looks like, how you know you're doing well is really key. But then you get into the whole, well, what does success look like? Does it mean being a multimillionaire <laughs> or having a happy family and a, a nice life? It, it, it becomes hard, doesn't it? You also, as you were talking about that sort of worst case scenario situation, it made me think about rules and the rules that we have. Mm. And I was listening to a podcast earlier on this morning, and it was talking about the Building Safety Act. It's not something I'm, I know lots about, but that's a, an act that's come out post-Grenfell to improve standards and all, all of those things. But it was an RICS podcast, actually. I'll pop it into the into the show notes links if you've not listened to it. But what it made me think about is blame. Who are we blaming? Who's responsible for how can we trace who did what, where and when? And it was a really informative podcast and I've heard various other ones, but it was all about blame and, and who, who's going to be accountable rather than what's the whole purpose of this? How are we all going to work together to get this right? And I know on, the, on one hand, yes, you need something documented, a process, but again, it's that bringing it to life. And they just didn't mention that. It was just blame, accountability, who does what, where and when. And there's like no sort of oversight as what's the whole purpose. And I see that time and again, I see it with surveyors. I see it in different parts of the the built environment. And I've often seen that in the complaints and claims that I've dealt with. The first thing would be I'd speak to the surveyor and they would say, oh no, I I thought that was going to be a problem. And the question whenever I, I raised it or flagged it elsewhere was, what was the surveyor's name? Who's at fault? and i would be asked for root cause analysis what's the root cause of this variant like there's one one thing that one person did but it's never that clear cut is it
0: no so i distinguish between blame and accountability so i think accountability is very important and it's kind of like who who was whose job was it to do something so whose responsibility was it to do something But it's not an emotional thing. It's just if you actually clearly look at roles, responsibilities, who was accountable, and then trying to understand where that failed, where people failed to fulfill their accountability, which I think is very different from blame, which is an emotional, personal, it's your fault conversation, and I think is massively unhelpful. I do think people need to be held to account for not fulfilling on what they're accountable for. But then you also have to look at look at context. So to your point is is there ever a, a simple root cause? I don't think so. I I I mean many people will disagree with me, but I think root cause analysis or coming up with single points of why things went wrong is not helpful. Behavior happens in context and asking why things made sense versus what people did wrong gives you access to more systemic issues and causes, more complex causes, but more systemic causes. Because the blame narrative, I mean, in safety circles, we kind of talk about this thing sometimes called the bad apple, is there's this theory, okay, well, we'll just identify the bad apple and then somehow we remove the bad apple and then everything's going to be okay. But we know that's not the case. Do you know, the, there's, there's cultural systemic issues that, and all that will happen is they'll be replaced by another person that's operating in exactly the same context and will likely make exactly the same decisions. So I think the whole AIM narrative is massively unhelpful. The Building Safety Act is useful because it clarifies accountability. But if we're clarifying accountability so we know who to blame versus so that we can actually make buildings safer, then for me, that's slightly problematic. Mm. But you will. I mean, frankly, I'm a little bit cynical about change in the built environment. So so, so maybe the kind of stick approach of you will be caught is what's needed to drive change in the industry. I don't like that approach, but maybe to a degree that's needed. Well, I guess it's it looks like somebody's taking charge and is
1: in control and doing something because they're coming up with some some more rules, but we've got to trust in the rules. So if I think about a surveyor out there trying to work out what the best thing to do is making the the, the right decision and, and, and the pressure on there. If the rules say that you stand on one leg and wave the other hand and that will solve all the problems and you do that, then we have faith in it. And And that's the thing with building regulations. They're out there, this is the, the standard, but things change. And we put our faith in something when we're learning things technically. And I read an article that you shared recently all about maintenance. That was really insightful because we've lost that art of maintenance and all of these rules and regulations need to be maintained because things change. And that's why, I suppose, we have CPD. But that whole sort of putting faith and trust into the rules, it creates certainty so that we can do our jobs with a certainty, knowing that this is the way that that things are done. And all of a sudden the rug is pulled from us. But we've sometimes we know they're not the right rules. It's, we know it's not the best way to do something and we we don't call it out or we, we don't know we don't know how because we don't want to upset the culture being seen as the the bad apple, the the troublemaker, all, all of those things. And when I think about the, the different cases and things that I've dealt with over the years. People are looking for, tell me the trend, what's the problem, so I can put it on a chart, share it with the the management board, share it on a a presentation, where the problems are to make it simple. And they're just not, like you say, they're they're just not that complex. And what we're asking people to do is to perform at a certain level when it might not work for them. And particularly things like accessibility, more and more surveyors I came across are neurodiverse. And we're asking them to dictate or type reports or use technology when actually they'd rather use pencil and paper. But it fits, it's sort of trying to fit into that sausage factory square peg method when actually we're all different. And I think that's where for me that that whole customer experience part came in, in meeting people where they're at to get the best. And employee experience is the reverse of customer experience, really. And the more that we can do that, Mm. we can help people get better to and and to know how to make the right the right decisions for them but we do put a lot of faith in the rules and or regulations and, and standards and i don't know personally I just get a sense of can we
0: trust that anymore so i think there's this term that high hazard industries use called mindful compliance So one of the things, if you go back to low probability, high consequence events, regulations and guidance and standards, et cetera, are usually created in reaction to something. So something bad happens and then you create new regulations or guidance to stop that bad thing that happened happening again. But they're not often written from a future perspective. So what could go wrong? So we should comply with rules, but but I would say we should make sure we're complying, we understand it and are complying with the intent of the rule. So in Grenfell, the functional requirements were around the spread of fire outside a building and then you had the guidance. So people, I think, had lost sight of the functional requirement and had just turned, let's tick box or try and get away with whatever the guidance said in the approved documents. So I think there's something for me around our relationship with the rules and being very clear about the intent. So following the intent of the law, not tick-boxing. But then secondly, this mindfulness and looking at the world is increasingly complex, the built environment is increasingly complex. We're bringing in new risks and hazards that we don't fully understand as we're trying to deal with sustainability. So the nature of risk is changing. So we can't just blindly go, oh, well, if I've complied, everything's going to be fine. We need to understand risk and look at the risks and look at it systemically and holistically and understand how this decision impacts other decisions and what the unintended consequences are. So I think, Again, from a kind of development perspective, these things are critically important in the built environment. And I'm not sure how much those conversations, again, are happening about the complexity of mindful compliance, what it takes to do that, what it takes to raise a concern, what it takes to create environments where anybody in the supply chain can go stop. I'm worried about something here and that that's welcomed and engaged with and looked at. Not oh come on we're on a tight deadline now you're seen as a troublemaker I don't I'm know sorry. that we're creating those environments
1: I just feel like that sounds like the story of my life <laughs> as calling the exile and being the troublemaker and and I don't think it it happens the, those conversations because we've never learned how to have them there's always been someone else's no. problem so how how do you how do you start that how do you how do you How do you
0: bring that in? How do you bring what in the speaking up or the culture?
1: The culture. So the because on the one hand you could have a graduate who's seen or heard something or experienced something and they want to be able to share that that worry, raise it, call it out, and you're right, it needs to be engaged with. But it comes as at the top as well in that leadership, doesn't it? Bringing in that cultural change of let's talk about all the things that can go wrong or the things that have gone wrong. Let's analyse all the different complexities of why that might be where do you start with with doing that if as a as business or an organization you've never you've never looked at that
0: I think for me one of the most important things is looking at whose voices are heard and whose voices aren't heard so I've this real belief in the importance of what I call equality of voice but for a particular reason, so there's a moral aspect to that, is of course we should create a of voice and ensure diversity from a moral perspective. But there's also tacit knowledge. So a young graduate could come in and see something because they have fresh eyes and they have a question that actually, if we listen to it, will reveal something we haven't thought of. Or somebody who's neurodiverse brings in a completely different way of thinking about something that might either raise a risk that we haven't thought of or lead us to more innovative solutions. So I think there's something around understanding this notion of tacit knowledge of what people naturally bring. I think women bring a certain amount of tacit knowledge just from, I heard you on a podcast talking about being a mother or organizing or stuff like that. So I think there's a whole host of, tacit knowledge that we don't tap when we silence certain voices. And particularly when we're in quite technical industries, we use technical expertise, I call it the cult of expertise. So we we use technical expertise unintentionally to silence other voices. So one of the things I'm Passionate about is this notion of which voices count and which voices don't, and starting to understand that and then tackle that. Now, there's practical ways that you can do that. So, I I do know the concept of red teaming. So, you intentionally set up somebody or a team to challenge. So, if you're in a meeting, You actually assign somebody the job of being the challenger or you set up a team to work on a similar problem and their job is to question your views. So that's just a very practical way of doing it. But you have to be, what would I say? You have to be committed to creating equality of voice. And I think you have to be interested in doing that beyond just the moral conversation about it and understand this notion of tacit knowledge and tapping that wisdom is critical for good decision making. So this diversity of thought that is what's needed. That yeah, that that cognitive diversity. I wrote something
1: yeah. on LinkedIn recently about this actually, because I see lots of working groups, boards, committees put together and they're all the experts or well, the people who can afford the time to do it. And yet why can't you have a graduate on a technical board involved in all, all the different things to give that different, different viewpoint? It's same for small businesses. You mentioned neurodiversity women. And then it, but then it becomes hard because how many boxes can you tick to make sure that every flavor, shape and size is, is included? But I think the point is that you try and you, you engineer it or you don't just have one board. You have a secondary board that,
0: you know, there are different ways that you can. Exactly. I I think also understanding the barriers to participation is really important. So uh, in housing, for example, is people all go, a resident's voice is so important, et cetera, et cetera. And then they create meetings in the middle of the day. And I'm like, well, but residents are mostly working or what are the barriers to better representation on boards? eight after advert that goes previous experience required and you just go well you've just cut off a whole host of people from versus going okay what's the kind of diverse thinking we need and then once we found that diverse thinking what do we need to onboard people so that they can be successful and effective on boards or on other governance structures so I think it starts with a commitment and then you figure out how to do it. But looking at barriers and which voices count and which voices don't, I think is, is critically important. But you have to understand that this is all linked with power and to rebalance power, some people have to give up power. So I think that's also, again, not spoken about. And are, are the people in power in the industry willing to give up that power in some forms? To create a, a better industry, that, that remains to be seen.
1: That's yeah, that's really insightful. I mean, you often hear about women
0: need to step up, but actually, some people need to step to
1: the side too. Well,
0: exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it, it, the, there is that, and and also, how do you do that with respect and regard and compassion and honoring of 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 everything? First, so you're now bad because you're a male or you've been in the industry for a long time or whatever that is. So I think what we're dealing with is complex and everything should be done with kindness and compassion. But those hard conversations need to happen. Well all learning, no
1: one no one really sets out to do a bad job. No one really sets out to make mistakes. They happen. And then you get all sorts of disasters in in all sorts of of different ways. so it comes back to remembering that no one no one ever nails it. We've never got all the experience we need or the personal development and social skills to work within a team or or whatever we're always learning and and sometimes we need to know when to step up and also when to step back and shine a light on on other people mm-hmm. or. But from what you're you're saying, it sounds like diversity is that and that cognitive diversity is really, really key to have that not just to tick boxes to say, yes, we've got quotas for women, or we've we've got a an event, or we're doing this, that, and the other, but to really embed it into the operational function of a a business, standards, regulations, or whatever it is, to make sure that
0: And particularly to embed in decision-making. So I I think for me, there's something very much about power. So you can have a massively diverse workforce, but what's the diversity at the point of decision-making? And what's the diversity at the point of the conversations that lead to those decisions being made? Because that's where you need slightly different conversations than I think we currently have. I would also challenge, like that, one of the things from a greenful perspective that I've really struggled with, still do struggle with, is I think some people do intentionally do bad things. So I, th- I think if we if we look at the findings of the inquiry, and I'm I'm not going to go into details, but I have been staggered by the knowing acts that were right. taken across the whole supply chain. So I think there is something for the built environment to own in terms of a moral and ethical leadership that sometimes is perhaps lacking? And how do we call that out when we see it and make that unacceptable? I guess that's where the accountability part of the built and
1: safety Exactly, exactly, exactly. What does ethical
0: leadership look like? I hope you know if you're a, a good ethical leader good question do you know the the thing I've learned so this is personal I'm not gonna do a. well here's the definition of ethical leadership you can go and read about that for me a lot through failing to do this I think there's something about being true to your values and not compromising and that's hard. Living that way is hard and uncomfortable and a lot of people won't like you. I was just talking to somebody yesterday about this. It's kind of like, well, if what you want is comfort, that's going to give you a very different uh, style of working than if you want to live true to your values. And I think part of that is knowing when to walk away. So So, if there's there's a real conflict with your values. I've thought about this a lot. and, And again, a lot through not walking away when I should have in past experiences and then reflecting on my learnings on that and going... I always ask myself, am I willing to walk away? If I'm in a position where I'm not willing to walk away, that's not healthy. And it, that includes literally having enough money in the bank to yeah. walk away, Yeah, and which I'm fortunate I do, but many people don't have that, do you know? <laughs> you know, that's so insightful because I agree. You've got to know your values. I've actually got a piece
1: of paper here with my values written down. <laughs> oh, wow. Well. I, did on a, I was back in 2018 and I'd, I'd actually left a role. I worked for a, a corporate and I left a role and it was, there were was some difficult circumstances and I gave myself sort of an afternoon for a couple of hours just to think about does this sit in my values? And that is a good place to start with if you're being triggered or unhappy or different things are happening. Does it work with your conscience? And when I left, I had no money. Fortunately, my, my husband just moved job and, and and things. And you've got to make those decisions as a, as a family. But it got to a point where it grated so much with my values and what was important to me and what I was seeing happening. If it had continued, it would have affected my mental health and I would have yes. struggled. But I also see that, so for example, I was on the RICS Governing Council, which went through a difficult time over the past couple of years, and being involved in in helping resolving some of those issues and, and set up the inquiry. On the one hand, you just think, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I'm about, and this is not what I want to be associated with. And so on the one hand, you could think, well, I could turn away and walk away. But then equally, being on the inside you can then make change. And I think that's that's an important exactly. thing. Is we can look at we can look at our values and know when it's right to walk away or to throw the, the toy out the pram. But sometimes you're in the right position. And and I do think in many ways I lived a lot of my values in order to get to to get to to, to where we needed to be. But then I also stepped away last year as well. Because yeah. again, sometimes you can have a, a voice, a greater voice outside than that you can inside.
0: But you've got to start with knowing your values and um, and what's important to yeah, you. I think so, and kind of your moral compass. So is, is I think, and as you say, it's not clear cut, and it's it's certainly not in the built environment. Oh, I'm everything's always going to be hunky dory, and I'm always going to feel resonance with my values. In fact often you'll feel dissonance and that space of dissonance is either the opportunity for change and having some different conversations and giving everything to that and then at some point it's okay if this is not going to make a difference is this an opportunity to step back and walk away so i think i think that's from the perspective of ethical leadership from an individual perspective is really being grounded in your values and being willing to grapple with some quite gnarly issues that aren't clear-cut. But trusting if there's something off on the moral compass, then you need to look at that. I, I think there's a broader issue because that's the individual level. There's a a kind of what is ethical leadership look like or how do you create contexts or organizations for ethical leadership and I think there's probably two specific things I would talk about there and is creating I mean psychological safety is a, a term that's used a lot and I think is often not understood in the way that Amy Edmondson who's the person that invented it means it it's the the willingness or how safe we feel to take interpersonal risk in a team. So will we question or say, I've got a concern about this or including innovation. So there's both, a, I see something I'm concerned about and I've got an idea I think would make us more effective or take us down a innovative thought path. So I think this notion of creating spaces where we can talk about things that we often don't talk about is incredibly, incredibly important. And I think linked to that from a, executive position over many years coached a lot of executive teams and what i always say to them is the most important thing is their relationship to bad news so how willing are they to listen to welcome actively search for bad news in an organization and once that shifts and executives actively search and welcome bad news i remember my editor i talk about welcoming bad news in my book, and and Sam, who's the copy editor, was like, "You, can, that's not a sentence. You can't welcome bad news. And we went back and forth for ages. So I'm like, I'm not changing that. <laughs> but I do think there's something about being willing to welcome bad news organizationally that helps with all of this. And that's the thing. You can look back at a situation,
1: and hindsight is a great thing, of who should have said what where and when and and all, all the different actions. We can look at the the crystal ball that is the root cause <laughs> of oh, the problems and and things that we discussed. But it's that you're right. It's that we can't fear it. And and we can I see this with surveyors, they're they're scared of making the wrong decision. They're scared of being sued and a claim and a, a disaster happening. And it, it will happen. And bad things might happen. But that's how you learn, and that's how we, we we've got to where we are because of the years of claims and case studies of the past. And that's how we've got to to where we are. What becomes quite hard is, I guess, the culture of who's the best surveyor or who's the best technical person. The 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 blame culture. Let's get it all on a page so we can understand where the simplify where the where the problems are. And life's just not not like that. But if we can meet that fear and be comfortable that we're doing. The right thing, taking the the job seriously, supporting ourselves in the right way, talking to the people that we that we need to, that we're putting ourselves in the best chance of of getting it right, so that we can do our jobs and and help people. But fear fear makes us scared, and scared people do scary things and become scary. And it's yeah. really important to address that. I think, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think. I mean, fear even what it does to our brain is it stops us. Thinking, it, it literally like thinking using certain parts of, of our brain. And I, th- I think there is a lot of fear in the industry. So, one, again, one way I, my, my mind is always full of kind of ways of thinking about things is there's workers prescribed. So, how we say it should be done, how we imagine it's going to be, and then how it really happens. So, workers prescribed, imagined, done. And then this other one is is work is disclosed. So do we talk about the gaps and the difference between those aspects of work? And I think again, the more we can create spaces to openly talk about the ambiguity and the messiness and the competing tensions and decisions that we have to grapple with, the more we can openly talk about that complexity and that ambiguity, the more we'll make better decisions versus I've got the right answer or I know exactly what to do. And buildings become more complex. I think that our collective wisdom is needed, not our individual wisdom, if you want, or individual answers. We need our collective expertise and wisdom to solve the challenges that the world faces
1: and it all therefore it all comes down to examples of good leadership doing things differently because we do seem very power driven but controlling even the minutiae of of detail and yet actually if we created a rule or regulation that that was loose enough. To, to allow that conversation to have happen and the right people to make the right decisions between them. It, it's always a bit like being on a trampoline. You've got a safety net around you that allows you to bounce and do all the things that you need to do rather than a rigid wire cage around you that stops you from doing anything else and you can only do one thing and go one, di- one direction. And I suppose really empowering people. One of the things I learned when I had a complaints and claims team at the time it was very prescriptive over who could authorise a refund for twenty five pounds or fifty pounds. And that was just an extra layer of admin for someone else to do and, and time when actually these people were more than capable of of making decisions and resolving things. And so perhaps there's a piece there on on empowering people to to do to do the job that they've been supported, trained to do and support them to it rather than hatch them out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and love about trust, I think. There's a huge amount about trust. Jill, it's been lovely to talk to you today. Thank and you so much. <laughs> oh, no, we could carry on for hours. We could carry on for hours and hours. But It's been really lovely. Thank you so much, Marion. I hope that the surveyors
1: find that quite insightful. And it might be another layer of, some of them might be thinking the old elf and safety and values. what's that all about? And for those listening, Lionheart has lots of resources on on this and I can put a few online or in the show notes. But even just starting that that journey of understanding a bit more can just help you put your work in context. And that's the start you know, where everyone finds their own way. But Jill, thank you ever so much for your time today. I appreciate it.
0: Wonderful. Thanks, Marion.
1: Thanks for listening. I hope you got some good takeaways from our conversation. And I also hope you remember, no matter where you are as a cog in a system or feeling an outsider, you have so much more power and strength than you think you do. Don't forget to leave a review on Google or Apple iTunes because every time you do, you'll also be helping to make a difference in the world. Love Surveying is a global partner with B1G1 and you can find out more information about our impact on the Love Surveying website.